Welcome to The Rodcast with Rod Turner, the show all about real estate. We discuss everything that affects asset-backed businesses, investments, and go deep into the details with some of the best in the business. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Rodcast. We're very fortunate today to have our guest back on the show. He was last on an episode 46 it is the CEO of Brickflow, Ian Humphreys. Welcome, Ian. Welcome back. Hey, Rob. Thanks, Henry. Yeah, good to be back. So, Ian, you've been busy not just with Brickflow recently, which is a fantastic online tool for development finance but and, and bridging now, but you've also been very busy recently with putting together a white paper on the housing crisis, and that's really what I want to kind of talk to you about today. So... Sure. I guess my question to you is, why did you feel the need to put together a white paper with some other amazing people around the industry? And what does a housing crisis currently mean to you? When we started Brickflow, you know, one of the outcomes we wanted to achieve was to increase housing supply. Um, So we felt that the lack of transparency and lack of understanding, really, with some people around how to best use finance was holding back housing delivery. And in fact, if you look at the Federation of Master Builders, who do an annual survey, you know, going back five years plus, it was the number one or number two reason for developers why they weren't building more houses was, was lack of funding. And so our, our platform was part of that solution to try and address that problem. Um, but once you get past the funding and it, and again not this isn't just down to brick flow this is obviously other things uh, going into the mix here but now if you look at the FMB annual survey funding is further down the list it's you know number 3 or number 4 each year so there has definitely been an improvement in access to funding and and there's many reasons for that digitization there's more players in the market you know there's many contributing factors to that but i think once you solve that you understand that actually the real problem that's called or the big problem we have is this huge deficit we have in housing. And there was a study between National Housing Federation and the charity Christ in 2018. And they seem to think that we're about 4.75 million homes short of what we need. And that was 2018, wasn't it? So that's five years ago and we were four and a half million out. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And if you look at net migration figures over that time, I mean, they probably, I would assume, exceed well over a million. Yeah, it it was 606,000 just last year. Exactly. And if you assume that, you know, most of those people are couples or, you know, that around half of those people need houses. Sure. So 606,000 last year, perhaps 300,000 net new houses needed or accommodation needed. And that, as you correctly say, that's probably a similar number every year for the last five years. So we were nearly five million five years ago is probably an even bigger number now. And and I think speaking to brokers, to developers, other property investors and people like yourself and other industry experts, you know, there is only a certain amount of things that the private sector can do. And basically you get to you unravel the string and you get to the point where the planning system isn't fit for purpose. And that isn't the only problem, but it seems to be 
the crux of the problem. And so we took it upon ourselves. And you mentioned some of the other people that are in the paper. So like Knight Frank, PwC, Bayes Business School. So we basically brought together an ecosystem of contributors who had a slightly different way of, of approaching it or slightly different day-to-day -day experience of the problem and really brought everyone together to try and understand fundamentally what are the problems. And, and the reason we did it was because we felt that the government weren't going to do it. So the rhetoric, you know, we probably all remember Build, Build, Build with Boris a few years ago. Recently, the Labour Party in their conference was saying they want to build one and a half million homes in the first five years. And that that's all great. And it is fantastic. Well done. You know, great to have like these aspirational targets. But the most, the biggest number of houses we've delivered in the last five years, I think is 240,000. So the government set itself a target of 300,000, which they've now abolished because they weren't getting close to it. They didn't want to just keep reporting failure after failure. That figure has obviously been used by Labour, 1.5 million houses in five years. So 300,000 seems to be the number both parties are agreeing on. But we're not even getting close to it. I mean, the, the average over the last 10 years, is, I think, is sub 200,000. So we're getting a net increase every year of the number of houses we needed. And and so I guess what we thought was we'd do the government's job for them. Or, or, you know, we're apolitical. We don't care who solves this problem. But the point is to be solved. This is too emotive a, a problem, I think, for everyone, for it just to be left to fester and, and no one address it. And I think, you know, we we talked about it before, but I mean, we've 16th housing minister today. 17. Um, <laughs> 17th, sorry. Um, in 13 years. And that to me is just emblematic, emblematic, sorry, of disdain, lack of seriousness that's really given to the role. Like it's, no, this is a huge problem for people. This policy, government policy, probably affects people more than anything else. Housing, right? Health, of course, you know, but we don't really need, need it until we need it. You know, housing yeah. is an everyday need that every single person needs and a, and a democratic modern society should be able to provide its inhabitants with somewhere safe to live at an affordable price and the, the fact of the matter is we can't do that and therefore we're failing i think you've come up with so many great points there that i just want to want to come on to so the first one being obviously the the lack of net new houses and you talked about kind of this three hundred thousand being the figure we're actually on track for our worst year on record of 111,000, which is just so bad compared to, and that is the worst year on entire record. So it's just as this is coming out, we're getting even worse and worse. And then one of the other things that I thought was interesting about the kind of talking about the private sector, the private sector can't do it all. And actually, if you look at who's been building houses since the Second World War, the private sector is now doing the biggest proportion of building of new yeah. homes than they've ever done before. And yeah. local authority have gone from being the biggest builder of homes to the smallest builder. And we've got like housing associations, which are pretty stable. They've grown slightly as well. So that I thought was quite interesting as well. When I read those kind of stats There's a great graph, I'll try and put a link to it in the show notes of it. But it's kind of, it's where's the emphasis here? 
and then it's the type of housing that's needed as well and you, and you just touched on that at the end with affordable I mean I think one of the good kind of phrases and I can't remember where I've heard it before but I, I sort of bought into it was having a home is a right that everyone should have owning a home is a privilege and I thought that was quite interesting can't remember that was from a political talk somewhere years ago but I, I kind of thought that was interesting so in terms of building more and we've, and we've heard from you again about some of the problems that's causing building to be so bad we talked about finance although it definitely seems like it's got better or funding I should probably say planning should we touch on that quickly yeah so the the 10 points that came out of the, the white paper um, which we will put the uh, link in the in the show notes so people can download. Yeah. But there were 10 and they're all interlinked. But the three key issues that came out were planning, funding and land supply. OK, so we, we've touched a bit on funding. I, I, there is something else I want to mention about funding. Whilst it's got better, I think, accessibility, you could argue, well, you could look at it a couple of different ways. Planning now is the number one problem for house builders when they say that they, the reasons they don't deliver more stock. So you could argue that funding perhaps hasn't necessarily got better, it's just planning's got worse. But mm. let's say perhaps that funding's got better. What's happened in the last couple of years is because we've had this huge increase in the base rate over a very short period of time, is now got instead of a, a credit crunch like we had in 2008 you've got this what i term a liquidity crunch so you've got this situation where there is still credit and people are happy to lend and and people can find borrowing the right but the right borrower can absolutely find funding in this market for the right scheme there's mm -hmm. there's not a problem around credit people are being a bit perhaps a bit more choosy but if you think that for every 1 million borrowed by um, any borrower, each time the base rate goes up by 1%, that the cost of that borrowing goes up by £10,000 annually. Yeah, The average development loan in the UK is about £5 million. So that means that every developer borrowing an average size loan in the UK has now got to find an extra £50,000 in deposit to get that scheme off the ground. And if you extrapolate that further, so there's a roughly around 9 billion of funding, uh, development funding agreed every year in the UK. If you take that 5% that increase across that 9 billion of funding, developers have actually got to find an additional 450 million in equity, in deposit, to, build, to borrow the same amount of money as they would have done two years ago. That's huge. Yeah, that's huge knock-on effect. And so... The government has a responsibility there. I feel through that Homes England, uh, Business Bank, etc., and other sort of quangos that that they control, they they need to help bridge that gap. Right. That's the issue here. Is that you and you you sort of pointed at it that the delivery of of homes this year is the lowest it's ever going to be. A lot of that is due to um to COVID, but then to go on to the planning point, if you look at the planning figures the number of applications and number of approvals is dropping by double digits every single year and has done over the last five years so i think we've got a record low of planning applications a record low planning approvals um so tie that in with problems around funding as well that you've got this now this big equity gap the government 
has a, or whichever party's in power has a huge, huge task on their hands just through the fact that they haven't managed to sector well at all over the last three part well in third parliament now. Um it's just been failure after failure. So planning, yeah, go go Rob. Just as on the funding side then. Mm. So cynics then might say, well hold on, if they do that, if they do something like release a help to buy scheme or, or a new kind of similar scheme. Are they just propping up house prices? And in a free market, do you not want either? You've talked about funding costs have gone up. Well, yeah, they have, unless, of course, equity starts coming down, i.e. house prices crash, and then they might not need as much. Now, you mentioned kind of base rates going from 0.25 to 5%. That is a 1,900% increase, <laughs> which is absurd when you look at it like that. And that, that brings it kind of home when people say, oh, well, in 1989, it was 17%. Yeah, but it only was up there for three days. And it also only rose by about 8% to get to that point. So when you measure the two against each other, it's absolutely astronomical, the growth in a very short period of time. But I guess one of the concerns is inflating or keeping house prices high by offering cheaper finance or like we i mean there's various things that can happen you can stretch the uh, length of a mortgage term i mean 30 years ago when first time buyers got a mortgage the typical term was 20 years now it's 40 years so that again stretches it so there's all sorts of things that can happen I mean, you go over to Japan and some other areas of the world and actually mortgage terms get passed down to the kids because they're so long. And, and it's these things. Yeah. That, so do you want to go down that route? Because is it something that can then be brought back, I guess is what I'm saying, asking. Well, I think we're talking two slightly different solutions, right? We've got supply sure. side and demand side. So on demand side, I don't think you need to yeah. um, boost uh, demand any more than you do. I mean, Great. help to buy, I think, was a good scheme. Mm -hmm. um, I agree with it. Does it need to come back? I mean, I, I'm I'm agnostic. Like, I think if it came back in, it would it would be good for some people to help them get onto the ladder. Uh, but if it, it could also overheat the market, I think what we what I'm sort of thinking and talking about really is more on the on the supply side. You know, there are people that will have land at the moment that that could be built could be delivered but they can't deliver because they can't access the equity they need to do it and so almost it's like a reverse of of the right to buy sure. uh, sorry of help to buy sorry um where you're saying actually the government can take an equity position in the development so they can basically bring together the, the land supply, people that aren't building for the reasons that they can't access the funding they need to do it, and the government can take a stake in that in that project. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. On the topic to bring of more houses to the yeah. market, we we compress that that demand, don't we? And that's what it's all about: is supply side, not demand side. I Absolutely. Think. I mean, de demand. We we don't in my kind of thought process, we don't have a demand issue. And the whole idea of help to buy, we have helped to buy in different guises, I guess, with ninety five percent mortgage offers and all this sort of stuff that are, and and like we've talked about mortgage terms and things like that. But certainly on the supply side, I'm quite surprised that actually land supply uh, issue you just mentioned, where people can't access the funding. I'm surprised that I don't know they're not getting letters through their door from 
from other developers saying, hey, look, we've identified your land for, for this. And could we buy it or could we joint venture? Because, I mean, I don't know, I'd get enough letters through my door and not a big landowner. So I'm, I, I'm, I'm sure they are. But yeah. then people, unless they actually need to build, you know, unless they're under financial pressure to do it, they don't, they will just sit, won't they, until well, the, the market becomes easier. Well, I think that's a really important point, isn't it? Because at the moment, it's very much, um, I, I, I think that the government's kind of focusing on using the stick rather than the carrot to a lot of these kind of developers and landowners. Whereas if they can encourage them, now I know people might be thinking, well, help to buy, encourage them because it inflates prices. But what about tax credits? What about all these other things that they could be doing to incentivize to get going? Because what you're really talking about is land banking, isn't it? For want of a better if people are sitting on land that could be developed that they're not because they don't need to, then, I mean, that's just one reason why you might be land banking, but there's, there's obviously others. But if you're encouraged to go, actually, if we can get planning through and building started, we and we can use this carrot to encourage you to do that, wouldn't that be a great kind of way? I agree entirely. I think there's there's two things really with this. Firstly, developers are not going to develop unless they have confidence in being able to sell their, at the price they need to sell. Right? Yeah. And the issue you've got at the moment, this is one of the issues that comes out of the failure of the planning system. So the planning system is, I mean, I haven't done any planning applications post-COVID, uh, but planning applications I did pre-COVID I pretty much got them through in the sort of two to three month window that was that was expected. You know, we feed people on a daily basis now that have the simplest of, of planning applications and they're waiting more than a year. Um, so so our through. last one, which was relatively simple, was 22 months. <laughs> yes. yes. I, I mean, I was speaking to a developer the other week who bought a sightline planning 20 months ago. And all they had to do was, and it was, it was outline plus, yeah. um, you know, there was very like the, the highway study had been done. You know, there was a lot in that package being sold by the council. So the council were actually trying to get as much of it done as possible before they sold the land. And the problem you've got, Rod, is that people are buying land based on that price today and taking a view on the market, right? Mm -hmm. But they're taking a view on the market based on planning taking six months, right? Mm -hmm. We've now got people that are being wiped out. I'm speaking to developers going under as a business because the planning system is not delivering the stock in time. So there's two things. Firstly, they can't get and deliver stock to market and therefore earn a living. But also by the time they've got the planning, the economics of the scheme are much different, right? They've bought a piece of site, uh, sorry, piece of land based on a, a projected GDV, projected build costs, okay? GDV now, uh, GDVs have now come down, funding costs have gone up, build costs have gone up, albeit they're coming, they seem to be coming down slowly. But, but the point is, is that something you paid maybe two, three years ago, you paid a million pounds for, is possibly worth nothing in today's market based on a residual land valuation. So there's big problems there. And I think, you know, there are definitely... A lot of bridging lenders out there that we're speaking to who, for that reason, are getting very nervous. You know, they're forcing people to market. So there's definitely opportunities to come just because of the way the market's been timed, which is, you know, there's going to be winners and losers. 
But I think the wider point on all of this is that the construction industry in the UK contributes somewhere between nine and 10% of, of GDP. Yeah. And we're simple strategic investment in our planning system would basically boost our economy. Like construction is probably one of the biggest parts of the sector where most of the money stays in the UK. Yeah? And, and do you know what? Look at techno technology. A lot of it goes overseas, right? And um, do you know what boosts that as well? Just through. to boost that point, transactions on housing. Mm. So mm. the more transactions boost more construction, even if it's yep. existing, not to, or land and things like that. And obviously, whether prices go up or down is one point. But the more important point is to have transactions. So the more transactions we have, the better it is for all these other associated industries, construction being the big one. And I think that's a, just a massive point. It's a real circular part of the economy, construction. It's a win for everyone, government, private sector. Um, you know, it really should be. If you look historically, you know, any period of economic growth has generally been underpinned by construction. Yet you're in construction, part of you, your economy firing, and the rest will take care of itself. Okay, so there's two issues here that I have with this. The first is, what's the solution to the planning? And then the second is, who's going to build all this? Because we don't have any people working in construction. The ones we do are all going to leave the industry within the next few years because they got too old. Yep, and well, I'm annoyed, frustrated with the lack of um, uh, lack of planning or a lack of opportunities they had right so yeah it's um so what do we need to do okay so on planning a, a lack of technology is a big problem um when we're speaking to people in the sector that's what keeps coming back is that uh, need to be an increase in funding into planning departments it was something that was easy for councils to cut in terms of funding during covid i think there's still a lot of working from home and i just don't think you have the joined up technology and environment that you might have in the private sector to to keep planning ticking along as it was i think one of the other problems that you have is there's still a huge amount a huge element of subjectivity to it we spoke to there was one instance i remember that came up in the in the white paper where we'd spoken to two developers that were four streets apart and they'd gone for very similar schemes but one sat in one borough one sat in another and one was rejected and one was approved and yet they were like geographically, they were half a mile apart. But in terms of the way that they were assessed was very, very different because they fall, fell into different boroughs. I mean, one of the other things that came stats that came up during the white paper research, which, which astounded me as well, is that something like 20 percent of all planning applications that are rejected get overturned on appeal. So you, if you're a pure developer, you put something in, it's rejected incorrectly it shouldn't be rejected because then the oversight committee the people who audit audit it then come and reinstate 20 percent of them but that period that process takes a year so you've done nothing wrong but you've got a year worth of additional time of you know cost that you've got to meet for your business not earning income purely because somebody in the planning department got out the wrong side of bed and decided your um, windows weren't the right windows. And that's um, just on the ones that actually end up going to appeal. There's plenty that will just give up at that point and go in yeah. for a different scheme, aren't there? You're, you're right, yeah. And 
so I think funding is is definitely um, something that needs to uh, improve. I um, think if you speak to most developers, they would happily pay larger planning application fees if it meant certainty on on timescales. One hundred percent. From a developer, this is one of the biggest issues. Like, if you think about how much a planning application fee is, and then you yeah. think from the other side of the desk the work that needs to go in from the planning office yes. or planning officer team it's yeah. crazy it's absolutely yeah. crazy no wonder councils are going bust and all that's happening is the workload is increasing for the people uh, working for the council no wonder they're going into private practice after sort of six months and, and there's no one there to run it because why would you want to it's a yeah. more workload and less money yep um the other sort of big problem is is that the conservatives again have allowed councils to abandon their housing plans um so i think last time i checked there's 319 boroughs in the uk and over 60 had abandoned their local housing delivery plan because they're allowed to now um so it's a failure of leadership from the top in that you know if you don't need to provide a five-year plan um, then you're not going, you don't, right? Or, you know, if there's no you're not process, <laughs> if there's no pressure to, for you to do it, then you don't do it. And then that filters through, that permeates at every level, doesn't it? That lack of leadership and accountability. Or benefit, because it's a bit like these councils where, look, they're so concerned now about homelessness because they're having to put people up in temporary accommodation and they're saying yeah. they're going to go bankrupt if they're not already. Well, this is i saw a stat and i can't remember the actual numbers so it won't be that useful but maybe you can look it up Rod. but um the amount of money uh, the millions spent every day by councils across the uk in footing the bill because we're not building enough homes is ginormous and if that money was just diverted or it can't be diverted obviously uh, but if the same amount of money was put into the planning system you'd be able to cure that problem like pretty quickly and i just think it's a real failure and lack of like planning because <laughs> planning for planning and it is just a case of their sticking plasters that are put everywhere and it, you're getting to the point where it's all just going to explode well i kind of almost think it's already already has done because this is yeah. these are problems we've got five million individuals on the social housing waiting list that's the waiting yep. list. Five million people. Now, that's obviously not house, house, house. I can't remember the number. It's maybe 1.8 or something like that. But that's on the waiting list. So these are people that need housing urgently. Like yep. That is an astronomical number. And then when yep. you've obviously got, well, we've talked about affordability. Of people, but it's affordability of rents too. We've got um, the benefits cap is frozen. So why would people want to, want to go and rent out to tenants like that when the private sector so... Um, so much higher. So there's so many issues on that. Like it, again, it comes down to encouraging landowners, uh, homeowners, landlords, all these people, encouraging them to do what you want to do. It seems like there's no long-term thinking, and everything is so politically motivated with these four-year terms, so that nothing gets done long-term. And is there ever going to be some kind of, I don't know, cross-party? Uh, work towards agreeing something here we think 
one of the things that should be implemented is the House ministerial role or should not be a political role. Um, it should be apolitical. There should be a body that is responsible for delivering housing in the UK and they should not be they should be politically agnostic and not have to worry about this point scoring that each party seems to do at the moment whenever housing comes up. That to me would be a massive improvement on where we are now. I, I totally, um, totally agree on that. Yeah. And the the other point that's sort of touched on just there is is around land supply. That's sort of the third issue that that kept coming up through the paper was um, you know I think zero point two percent of uh, land in the UK is currently designated to build on 0.2%, which is tiny. It's infinitesimally small amount. So 90% of land in the UK is undeveloped, but only 0.2% is actually available to develop on right now. Um, so I think we one of our recommendations was a national database of all available land um, that we think should definitely be put into place. But one thing I do... Um, believe is a really useful something that was brought up recently by the Labour Party coming into the conversation was around the green belt. So when we think about the green belt, I think as as Brits, you you tend to think of like rolling meadows and what is quintessentially English, you know, or British, sorry, um, you know, countryside uh, where you might have a picnic and swing from a rope into a river or something that's <laughs> not what the green belt is in reality lots of it is yes but 13 percent of land in the uk is designated as as green belt and the labor party picked up on this in their conference and they they talked about the term gray belt and you know there are big portions of the green belt that are you know car parks disused um wasteland um, there's a lot of land around infrastructure hubs train stations etc which could be built on and is in fact is perfect for for building on because you don't have the issue we've got around london for instance is you've got you know everything's hemmed in by the the green belt and then to build you actually get, have to go over the green belt to areas which are less um connected in terms yeah. of infrastructure utilities etc so the actual cost of bringing those schemes to to market is much bigger whereas actually if you audited the green belt and said well actually you know th these these parts of it are definitely not what was envisaged when we termed green belt then then that stuff can be delivered pretty quickly and it's already close to infrastructure it's already close to utilities Sorry to interrupt this fantastic episode, but I just wanted to share some really exciting news with you. After a long time of wanting to be involved in a financial services business, I'm very pleased to say that myself and regular guest on the broadcast, Adam Lawrence, have bought into 978 Finance. We are a directly authorised FCA-regulated mortgage broker who specialises in buy-to-let mortgages, 
commercial mortgages and bridging and development loans. I've been very passionate about finance for a long time and have been part of financing a lot of very complex deals, as well as your typical buy-to-let and commercial mortgages. 978 Finance focuses on the customer journey and embodies the pragmatic solution oriented finance for each case that I absolutely love. It's got some very, very difficult financing deals over the line for me. And now I'm really pleased to be part of the business. So if you do have any new mortgages, refinances, bridging or development needs, please do get in touch with us. You can either contact myself or you can email simon at 978finance.com and we will make sure you're looked after. Let's get back to the show. Absolutely. I mean, we've got 600,000 empty homes in the UK and a lot of that is about actually they're just in the wrong places, um, which is why no one wants to live there in either lower value areas so people don't want to retrofit them up to what they need to be to be lived in or they're in places that there's just not enough demand and we've got even more empty commercial spaces as well um and again infrastructure is a massive thing but the government's shown recently they're not very good at sorting that out i mean hs2 is kind of just honestly if you you can't laugh you'll cry uh like these things that go on you just think what what is going on here? This, like, yeah. I think um, Michael Gove said recently um, building on brownfield land, brownfield sites, was a real key part of them delivering housing mm. to market quicker. And I, I do think the repurposing of industrial areas, of retail areas, you know, certainly from any high street I've walked along recently, it seems to me quite obvious need anything like the amount of retail space that we used to. Um, And, you know, repurposing that to meet our residential needs would, would seem to be a quick win. And I think that's really what, what we need to focus on is that certainly policy across the board needs to be really ripped up and, and rethought about, but certainly delivering quick wins as part of, the the process is 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 really needed because we've already touched on you know councils are paying tens of millions if not hundreds of millions per week per month housing people that that don't have you know a property to live in and you know we shouldn't be putting these people up in hotels we should be providing them with housing that they can live in is is that is a much bigger win right of course it is yeah is there is there anything about kind of if, if we look at other kind of G10 countries and what their housing supply is like? I mean, there's housing is a big issue pretty much everywhere in the world, but we seem really poor at it. <laughs> um, we've also got a lot of very old housing, which is the other thing. So net housing is an important one, not just new starts, because we do tend to knock old buildings down every now and again as well. And it's hard to retrofit old Victorian hundred-year-old homes. Um, so that's the other thing. Yeah, I think there are definitely cultural issues. Like I think as a culture, um, the, what's the old saying? An Englishman's castle, uh, home is his castle or something. Yeah, I yeah. do think there is a, a requirement, a desire for bricks um, rather than... And it's interesting you mention this because one of the recommendations in a white paper was around 
the adoption of MMC, modern methods of construction. So if you look at places like France, um, I think Sweden, 45% of their housing is, is MMC. Yeah. Um, if you look at uh, our delivery in the UK is about 8%. Uh, Japan, it's close to 20% each year is MMC. Uh, France higher than us, Germany's higher than us. I think, you know, aside from constraints we have around the size we are as a country, you know, we're quite densely populated compared to others. They definitely have more more land to fit and more space to use. But I think one of the things that we focused on in, in the report was that MMC, again, this, this is a leadership point. The government, if they could get uh, uh, local authorities, housing associations to adopt MMC, that would help us to adopt it uh, uniformly or on a more wholesale basis. So the part of the problem around MMC is, one, it's, it's sort of, again, culturally, historically, it's perhaps not seen as, as desirable. But also one of the issues you've got is that around mortgages. So the end buyers, or sorry, the developer needs to know that the end buyers can get mortgages to, to mortgage these homes. And certainly there hasn't been enough support or pressure from government to get banks to underwrite the loans to support these these houses, right? If we get anything close to delivering the number of houses we need, MMC definitely is part of the solution. But so if what? banks aren't going to fund it, then developers aren't going to build it. So if we can get the government to build the things that don't need mortgages, housing association and local uh, authority housing, if we can get them to build with MMC, then that definitely creates a bit of a change in the in the view to them. So with, I mean, I've done some modular builds um, before, and I think that they're absolutely fantastic. If I could build everything using modular build, for example, which either is a mo- modern, uh, modern method of construction, I would. But what's stopping me is not... Mortgages. I actually found mortgages, and I, with the firms that I used, were great. As long, firstly, you look at right the end mortgage. Is it going to be? Is this um, construction method and the factory on the council of mortgage lenders list? Does it tick all those boxes? Yes, great. There was plenty of mortgages available to buyers afterwards. Then you've got development finance, and that's a bit trickier. How do they? How do you go and kind of the monitoring? They'll be led by the um, the availability of mortgages. So and that's, it's, you're and it's right, it's the way to approach it. Is if yeah. you can find mortgage, then you'll get development funding. But, well, you, we could get development funds, and that, that wasn't the issue either. The issue is cost. Costs more. And yeah. it is faster, so you do save some costs there. But on the whole, it's hard to justify the cost. Now, what could save money is if you look at, if you get that, factory in at the design planning stage so they can start to give you more off-the-shelf kind of designs to put into the planning that can help as well i absolutely agree i think if councils and housing associations are using more of it it will work but i just wonder why you're getting kind of was it lloyd's who bought a factory recently and have just kind of closed it down lng of same lng yeah it might have been yeah so I mean, I agree. It's a great, I think it's fantastic. And I think we should be doing more of it. I mean, quality control is much better. Speed is much better. 
there's the only downside. Don't need, is, a, don't need a specialist um, Absolutely. construction skills. Yeah. It's just slightly too expensive. For the last couple of projects, we've really wanted to do it. And we just haven't been able to make it work viably in terms of the cost. But again, I think if you've got wider adoption, then that cost starts coming down, doesn't it? Yeah, um, you'd hope so. So I think you're right. Councils and local, or local authorities and housing associations, kind of, or government in general, doing that is brilliant. And I'd like to see that happen because we're getting back onto that construction and labour point. Who is going to be delivering all these bills if we manage to sort out funding, if we manage to sort out planning, if we manage to sort out the land supply issue? Who can do it? Because people aren't going, aren't flooding into the trades and apprenticeships at the moment, are they? Where's the benefit for them here? And what, yeah. what can we do to fix that? I mean, I think, again, it's demand and supply point, isn't it? But, you know, a lot of the specialists, construction knowledge and trades there was a bit of an exodus after brexit the government have tried to address some of these points by creating exemptions on on visas so promoting you know making it easier for people with these skills to to get visas and and work in the uk so i think you know if if you have the supply there if you have the ability to deliver the housing I think getting the the skills will be less of a problem because there are people, there are ways in which the government can incentivize people coming into the UK to do it. And I do think also as well, and I think this is, this is probably a wider social um, point around our societies going forward is that we do need to have or rebase what is most important to our economy um, you know, we need to be more balanced. We can't all be, you know, computer programmers. You know, we're going scientists. Need some of these. Yeah, we we're still going to need some of these skills that you know perhaps aren't cherished or celebrated as much as they should be. I mean, engineering in the UK is crazy, really. The the number of people that choose engineering in the UK, I think, is the lowest in Europe. Whereas, you know, that's a very noble. <laughs> profession industry to pursue um we just don't we have our you know our well what we think is needed is is different well, we, we've, we've got more yoga teachers than we have people that do yoga classes so that's probably really <laughs> that's really interesting yeah i think but i did see something around personal trainers i think you've got similar kind of glut of personal trainers oh it, it seems like there's Obviously, like you put in, you've got these 10 points that you put in the white paper. They're the main ones which seem to be funding, planning, land supply, and then what was what was the other one? I think technology is, is yeah. probably a big thing. You know, that underpins a lot of it is the adoption of technology across the sector. Mm. Um, you know, there's competing interests and there are uh, competing bodies. And I think really some some pretty brutal cost benefit analysis needs to be looked at across all of it uh, to ensure that we are you know delivering for both society but also boosting the economy um and that to me is is the crux of it if we can if you can tell if if you can say at a policy level we've got something that improves the lot of, of our voters of society as as a whole and it improves our economy at the same time, that really should be should be all that we need to know.
Absolutely. But the problem is not in coming up with a lot of the ideas. The problem is in getting it done. I mean, look at the NHS's computer system that they spent two billion on and never used. I mean, it's these sort of things that you think, how incompetent are these kind of services and government bodies? And, and that's why I think the most important thing that you've kind of said in terms of solutions is to have a non-political group that is housing. A bit like a central bank, although that's probably a poor example at the moment with how they've been performing. But I think the idea around that is really, really important to have something that is non-political behind housing that everyone gets on board with and they have a long-term kind of outlook. It's a bit like, I mean, we talked about 17 housing ministers. If you've got a football team and you change the manager every two minutes, I mean, the chances of them doing well are, are, are small. You've got to have some good leadership. It's the, um, it's the Chelsea of the uh, government. <laughs> uh, no, you're absolutely right. I mean, I think that the irony of it is, if you said to the Conservatives in 2010, I'm sure that you're going to be in power for 14 years, but mm. it will be by next year, right? I'm sure they would have approached things very differently with housing. And that is, that's the point we're trying to make, I think, isn't it? Is that if you had like an apolitical appointment that, you know, didn't have to worry about winning votes, they would do what's best for the economy as a whole and all of our stakeholders, members of, of the of UK PLC, isn't it? Absolutely fascinating. So, Ian, thank you so much for coming on the show today. We will make sure we've got a link to that white paper so everyone can go and check it out. There's some absolutely brilliant stuff on it. And hopefully we'll be able to catch up soon. Hopefully the government take it all on board and um, release it. Well, it'll be the first thing that's been whoever the new housing minister is. I think it's probably been announced as we're recording. It will be the first thing in their inbox. Congratulations on your new appointment. And here's a blueprint to how you do your job. Well, making it easy for him. Exactly, mate. Brilliant. Thanks a lot, Ian. Take care. Cheers.